I'm quite optimistic about the future of autonomous tech and robots, work from home, but especially a new generation of startups that will balance the need to have privacy, but, but also the need to share collective information about movement and tracking. Hello, and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the author of Ludacris, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. I'm Alex Roy, the uh, host of No Parking Podcast and founder of the Human Driving Association. And I'm Kirsten Korosek, a senior transportation reporter at TechCrunch. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, not, so not much new has happened in the past couple of weeks. Just, you know, global pandemic. Pretty quiet. <laughs> Pretty quiet. Uh, but there have been... Uh, Obviously, COVID-19 is on everyone's minds, and there's certainly a lot of engineers and folks who are now grappling with um, schools being closed. We're going we're gonna to talk about that. But there, but there are some things, since we haven't had a news show in quite some time, that we want to talk about first. And, um, you know, I think maybe, maybe we should kick off with, because Ed, you were there, GM's EV Day. Yeah. Also known as things that don't matter anymore. <laughs> right. Right. So so the caveat here is we understand that we're talking about things that um maybe aren't on everyone's mind, but it's still important and you know, I I do as someone who's been, you know, covering COVID now for weeks globally and now more closely at home and working pretty much we have our staff working pretty much all weekend. It's hard to to not think about that. But but the but there's a lot going on. Well, electric vehicles are very relevant because as part of this whole COVID crisis, there's the oil price war between the, the uh, Saudis and the, Russia, and the Russians, which has cratered oil prices, which has an effect on EVs. And that's, that's actually, yeah, that's actually been one of those things that's been a little bit lost in, in the, hyster- not hysteria, but like the right, you know, appropriate level of panic about COVID. Um, is is this oil market uh, development, which is which is actually huge, and um, and you know the markets have obviously been tanking, and and part of that is panic over the virus, but but I think what gets lost there is that the price of oil has gone way down, and it's come at a time when both in the the U.S. and China, um, the demand over the last half of uh, the second half of 2019 was was flatter down, um, so yeah, EVs are are suddenly facing a much tougher uh, environment than uh, people might have predicted. On the flip side, I'm going to make a case in favor of EVs. Are you ready? Here it is. Yeah. Okay. Now, I'm not a prepper. However, I am. You didn't, didn't used to be a prepper. Okay. However, you're all preppers now, Alex. Both my parents were refugees who immigrated to America. And uh, my father escaped the Nazis, my mother escaped the communists, and uh, I still have relatives who keep cash under the bed. So uh, in thinking about what vehicle I would want in the event of some societal catastrophe, who the hell knows, you know, in my mind, there's always this notion of gas shortages, which doesn't really make sense because gas is cheap, but, you know, it doesn't matter what gas costs if everyone's lining up to buy it, to fill their tanks full of gas. So last week I bought, Ed's going to love this. I bought a Tesla home charger and Today, in fact, sometime today after this podcast is done recording, I have an electrician coming to install it at my secret hideout location. I, I'm, not, I'm not joking um, because 
if as long as the power is on, you can charge an electric car. Why not make an off-grid system? Because then it would be really great. Like you should have some solar and some energy storage. I have been investigating solar stuff, which I hate to say. Why? Because I, I don't want to be that I, that guy. I, I, I'm not absolutely convinced that there's like affordable, reliable solar solutions. Although I have learned that there are some. But last week I went and met with the former head of NASA and some other officials who used to work at NASA. And one of them said to me, I said to him, I'm like, so do you have solar panels in your house? And he's like, I don't believe in that shit. <laughs> so I went hunting around uh, home solar solutions for something standalone. And I found a, a company called Envision Solar, which is one of the co- companies that ChargePoint and Electrify America contract to, to install locations that are not connected to the grid. So they're fully standalone and got some pricing. Uh, they don't offer residential options, but one might be able to negotiate. So I'm, I, in a future episode, we should definitely talk more about solar installations. I, I'm not yet convinced, but maybe. Well, I mean, there are absolutely, uh, out here in Arizona, um, there's, there's, a, there's a number of preppers, um, as you might imagine. <laughs> Um, in, in, in normal times, mm-hmm. not just now. Um, so they've been prepping for a while. Um, but there's also a number of businesses that based on their location are off grid. And there's, um, there's a farm here that makes amazing goat cheese, believe it or not. And, uh, they're completely off grid. It sounds like Oregon. It does, but they're completely off grid. And so I think that it's certainly possible to do. This is there is a huge leap though from having some solar capacity that's grid tied that you can especially if you have net metering and things right. like that. Um, the the jump and and the economics get so much more challenging when you go off grid and and so if you have a business that has to be uh, and you just don't have the option of services, you know people find a way of making it work. But um, you know this like a lot of things, uh, you know going off grid is really only an option if you're pretty well off um, or you have some kind of you know profitable business that's that's really remote, which is, which is pretty rare for sure, which actually is an interesting segue back to the GM thing, <laughs> which is that, um, you know, the, the, the biggest takeaway from it is that GM is, is, is really, um, betting on EVs as a premium market in the short term, um, which, which is, wouldn't you say like whether or not they're copying Tesla's playbook on that, it's, it, it's, it's, I, I'm sure that comparison is being made, but yeah. wouldn't that be where you would think that it would go, you would go anyway, just because what we've seen is that's the early adopter group. Um, they're not as price sensitive They're It's not going to be their only vehicle most likely. Um, and that the margins can be higher. You know, who absolutely annihilated GM's approach. Uh, John Volker um, wrote a piece a few days ago saying that the was the next generation bolt or the refresh still is limited to 50 kilowatt charging. Like the battery's better, but why is GM like locking itself to the slow, this, I mean, what they call fast is still not that fast. So, so, but the, the updated, the re it's just a refresh of the bolt and that's still on their gen two battery platform. Mm. So it's not this new Ultium battery, which is really the core of their strategy. And um, so I think the, the obvious, um, so, so Kirsten, you're right. Uh, in this country, in particular, 
Um, you know, where Tesla has really sort of defined EVs in the public imagination, we are clearly, it's a premium market. Like uh, the Model 3 was supposed to make it, you know, be the EV for everyone. And then that really hasn't panned out. Um, you're not seeing huge volumes of those $35,000, which even even if they were, right, that's the median price point in this country. So that's not, that. Market. yeah, and $35,000 really for vehicles, not mass market. A exactly. mass market vehicle is a Ford Focus yep. or, you know, something that price point. Right. And so, so, um, you know, it makes sense there. I think the way you contrast it is with Volkswagen and Volkswagen has a very, very different strategy with what's called the MEB, um, kit or whatever. It's a, it's an architect, a modular architecture. Um, and that is, uh, for smaller and generally more affordable vehicles, there will be premium vehicles built on it, but it's sort of, um, my understanding is it's kind of limited to about mid-size or American mid-size, which is like full-size anywhere else, uh, or smaller. And that makes sense for their strategy because where they're strongest is uh, China and Europe. And in China and Europe, um, you have much stronger uh, regulatory uh, challenges that require you to have a, a large a large percentage of your fleet be electric uh, in order to meet those standards. And and so they need to they need to pursue a volume strategy. They need to have affordable vehicles in volume. General Motors you know, their, their strength is in the U S market. So clearly the strategy is more about the U S market in China, where most of the demand is at the very low end from like ride hailing companies for EVs. Um, they just let Baojun, which is their, um, joint venture with, uh, SAIC. Um, well, it's actually a three. Anyway, it's a joint venture with one of their joint venture anyway, it, but, but basically their Chinese partners are handling that low end of the market in China. Um, and, uh, in the U S um, clearly what they're doing is, and it's, it's a fascinating, so I read about this for TechCrunch, uh, always fun to work with Kirsten and, uh, you know, in the, in, when, when GM was originally sort of rose to greatness, they were working from the opposite situation. Cars, the model T had made cars, this really mass market, uh, for the first time. And it was this very, you know, they weren't incredibly impressive cars, but they were just basic and rugged and anyone could afford them. And they got cheaper and cheaper. And they just could have made the same car at high enough volumes that the price went really far down. And, and it was impossible to compete with Ford at that game. And so what GM did was sort of amalgamate all these companies together and build this brand ladder. And they called it a, a, a car for every person purpose. And, and the idea was to build a ladder up from that low end. So you had Chevrolet competing with Ford at the bottom, but then, you know, Oldsmobile and, and Buick and just sort of up to Cadillac. And, and and GM, it was a paradigm shift in the US market. And they just completely took over from Ford. Um, and and they did it by having huge margins, which they could then invest in new technologies and push for. So um now they're they're doing the same strategy in the opposite direction. They're they're going, EVs are this high-end market. And so so GM is going to meet their their strategy is clearly to meet Tesla and even even exceed it. And and there's also a unique opportunity here to create this flagship Cadillac, which, by the way, is uh, going to blow people's minds when they see it. It's it's like a, a cartoon villain car. And I mean that in the best possible way. It's it's just ludicrous. And uh, so they're going to go at the really high end with Cadillac, really use this opportunity to move Cadillac up without having to develop a V12 or something like that, that they would need to compete with Rolls Royce or something just 10 years ago, five years ago. Um, and And so they're going to move Cadillac up. And then fill in those brands sort of in a ladder going downward. And so they didn't show many affordable mass market cars at all. In fact, barely any, um, except for the Bolt, which is not part of this new 
you know, Ultium platform. Is there going to be a truck? I can't remember. Is there going to be a truck on this? So, so, so the that's Hummer, the GMC Hummer, right? Modular architecture is sort of, it looks like it's sort of, it can go down to sort of American compact, which is really about midsize. It's what midsize was and is in a lot of places all the way up to this absurdly huge thing, uh, 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 sedan, which by the way, the interesting, the, the only sedan they showed was at the very top end. So they're also doing, they're not just doing premium brands, um, but they're doing crossovers and this is going to allow them to sort of ease towards, and it is sort of a Tesla inspired or whatever strategy. It's, it's like a mix of Tesla strategy and what they, and, and the original Sloan strategy. And so um, they've repositioned Buick. Buicks are going to look totally different. And when you see them, you're going to be like, yep, that's trying to be, that's trying to go for the Tesla market just in terms of styling. The very, very Tesla-like kind of handsome organic lines, uh, restrained. Um, and then uh, you have GMC, uh, GMC Hummer, which is going to also be, um, it's, an, it's another brand. And this is kind of the problem with the Sloan strategy is you kind of keep adding more and more brands. It gets a yeah, little Yeah, so that's what I, you know, when, when you wrote the story for us and we had talked about it then, we saw that GM was able to rise through dominance through this strategy, but it also was their demise um, and set them up really poorly and very vulnerable when the recession hit because they had so many different brands and vehicles. They were all over the place. And that was only half the problem. Okay. It was half the problem was they had too many brands. The other half of the problem was that the underlying technology, the number of motors and drivetrains and chassis and things like that that underpinned them, they had too few of. They pursued the strategy too far, which is the minimum number of, of chassis and motors with the maximum number of brand variations of that. They carried it too far, and 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 aren't they doing that exact same thing now? Because they are simplifying this underlying platform that can be used, and what isn't that the same issue or no? So it's an architecture, not a platform, which is the subtle distinction. But but um, the the important thing is is that electric vehicle technology enables this now because and it makes it it changes the entire calculation so there was a very famous lawsuit in oh man I, i'm not going to remember right now maybe the 70s um where basically gm was caught using and again i don't remember the details of this exactly but it was something like they were using a buick motor or engine in a chevrolet or something like that it was a, <laughs> it was a, a, a motor that was an engine that was supposed to be just for one of the more premium brands and it was basically revealed to be exactly the same as the engine that was being used in, in some base brand um and that was a big you know that they had to do that motors engines are expensive to develop um and and as the technology has matured it's become much much harder to differentiate those engines anyway um and so and so it, you have right now a v6 you know there's like a 3.6 liter v6 that the gm has that's used in everything from a chevrolet to a buick to a to a cadillac um so so they already that challenge exists with electric drivetrain technology there's no differentiation the difference between uh the motor in um a, a cheap you know basic vehicle and a motor in a higher end uh, electric vehicle Oftentimes, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be different. And, and from the consumer's perspective, you don't have those differences in the rev, you know, the pattern, the power curve. It's all the same and it's all software defined. And so essentially, you know, that's, that's an important part of that factor is balancing the number of brands versus the, the variety of the underpinnings. Since the, the underpinnings, how that performs to the consumer is software defined now almost entirely and not hardware defined. They can do this. The strategy is suddenly relevant again. I think that's the piece of this that people actually are, are not fully understanding. 
are they are they too late? No, God, no, 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 no. This idea that that you know that that it's a race. I mean, look, just look at the EV market. Like I said, it's been it's been flatter down. It's been struggling. It's it is very much tied to government policy. I think if there's a if there's a risk here, actually, it's that um, they're they're doing this clearly as a bet around the U.S. market predominantly, and they're doing it at a time when they're they they don't necessarily know. I think there's a good chance that if uh, under a new administration, there could be, and there's been talk about this, much, much bigger policies to support EV adoption. The risk, if anything, is that this strategy may not be tied to or flexible enough to to adapt to some totally new. For example, if there's a huge subsidy or or incentive to produce mass market uh, low end EVs, GM's going to be in a little bit of trouble because this 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 uh, architecture doesn't support that class of products. It's aimed at a at a premium strategy right now. Let me so, tell you, no matter what they do, uh, all of these EVs that are not Teslas are going to have to really work on their relationships with the third-party charging networks. Because if with gas prices falling, given my experience at Electrify America, uh, to a lesser extent charge point, but definitely Electrify America, um, with free-floating charging costs, uh, people are in for some EV charging shock at third-party networks if they don't know in advance what to expect. GM said on this point, because they didn't announce their own network or anything like that, said they they have the numbers and 80 at least 80 percent of all charging is done either at home or at the workplace and so that's really their focus and frankly i think you know in the early adopter phase we and we've discussed this a lot and i know we have different views on this i don't think road trip capability is that important for most people and i'm going to say that after coronavirus certainly during coronavirus and after one of the i don't want to i don't know if it's a negative effect but it's certainly going to be an effect People psych like survival psychology, or I think perception, like range anxiety, comes not from need but of want. Yeah. They don't need the range. They don't need big batteries. They don't need a lot of capacity. But they people, it's the same reason people buy guns. It's the what, the what ifs, ifs. And, and the what ifs are gonna are gonna affect EV demand. Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. Hold up. Let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit atonicast.com slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. So a lot of companies are, you know, no matter what, the next quarter of earnings is going to be hard for everyone. Um, The question is going to be, um, how long and how deeply the this hurts the economy, including manufacturers, because um, you know some companies they can have their most of their workers at home and continue business as usual. 
Um, automakers can't do that. People still need to build cars. So what do you think, and it's still super early days, do you think that we're in sort of an eight-week scenario where you know the next two quarters are probably going to be like pretty crappy earnings as a result of a slowdown in business, but that by the end of the year, things will be back to normal and um, all of the initiatives that companies like GM put into place will then you know, continue? Or do you see a reversal happening? Um, and I know this is early days and it's like total speculation, um, but do you think that this is going to really derail some of the, um, certainly some of the investments in tech and R&D, but even some of the like EV efforts, including GM? Well, the oil part of it's not going to help. Well, not only that, even, okay, if there's a new administration, that might change some things. But typically when a national declaration is, um, uh, you know, when there's a, a national emergency declared, typically uh, what happens, it's not just about releasing money. It's also about um, loosening regulations. We already have seen this with trucking. Um, and so the hours in terms of service have changed as a result. Um, because that is the national emergency. And I kind of wonder if any thing around emissions or incentives around EVs and things like that, that they'll be loosened. And I'm thinking way out, but they'll be loosened because they want to help automakers recover. And so I could see that happening as well, which would remove the incentive to, to go EVs unless the public really was asking for it. Yeah, I don't, I, I mean, I don't see it. I don't see any major, I think there's, they have enough on their plate um, that that's not, you know, do, doing a big EV related thing right now is not going to be, I, the real, look, the real question right now is what is demand, right? Because honestly, like, you know, there's a lot of indications that in, in a lot of markets, we've been heading into a cyclical downturn in auto sales anyway. Yeah. And if that's the case, and certainly like, so in China, right? like car sales have been down for for over a year now basically and um and and this is coming on the heels of of years and years and decades of massive investments in capacity there so if if demand is down if people aren't buying new cars um then shutting down the factories is actually the best thing that these car companies can do um and and just sort of sell through what they you know their their inventories um uh, until demand normalizes. So I think that's what's going to happen. I think part of this is there's going to be a natural balancing out here because I think the auto industry always tends to overproduce when things like also, by the way, we're in a, um, this is a, a, a the first quarter is there's generally a seasonal downturn in auto sales anyway. Um, and it's usually a time when inventories have kind of been built up a little too high and they, you know, and they, it's kind of an issue and going into the summer, they kind of slow production in order to, when demand picks back up again to, to sort of normalize those things. So these are usually the first half of the year is a little tougher anyway. Um, I, th I think demand has to be affected. Uh, everyone's spending all their money on canned food <laughs> and like <laughs> guns. Um, so I think, I think sales are in a downturn. I think that it's going to make sense. I think, you know, the fact that Fiat Chrysler has already announced that they're shutting down production in Italy, mm -hmm. which is notorious for having been sort of over capacity, um, you know, that that shows that these shutdowns is less that coronavirus and, and again, coronavirus is a bigger issue in Italy. And I'm sure that is a factor in the, that decision. But like there's a um, 
you know, there's a, a correlation here in that, you know, if if demand is fallen, then it makes sense to shut down these factories anyway. But of course, the problem is then that can create this like reinforcing effect. And and that's what the policymakers are going to have to, you know, try and figure out how do we stop, you know, some kind of death spiral if that's if that's what happens. I don't think we're seeing that yet, but that's that's the scenario that that policymakers have to be really afraid of is that mm-hmm. demand and and then product, you know, demand drops, production follows, that affects wages which drops demand further and and you get into that that economic death spiral that's the scenario and again i i don't think there's going to be drastic effects targeting that specifically at least in the auto sector for a while until it really is clear that that's what's happening but um yeah that's what i have to keep an eye out so you know covid 19 which <laughs> um is the disease that is caused by coronavirus so like just, you know, keeping things as accurate as possible over here. Um, I've written that phrase probably 25 times now. It's been, it's going to royal like a lot of the marketplace already. And I suspect that startups are going to see um, some struggles because invest a lot, a lot of people are kind of holding money a little bit tighter right now. Um, so the, to me, the question is going to be like, how quickly does it come back? And um, I don't know if you've talked to any investors or VCs like in the mobility startup world. I mean, are they, are they, what's their strategy? Have you, have you guys talked to any of them? I've talked to some and I can't really talk about some of the things I, I've heard and been told. Well, you don't have to uh, identify them, yeah. but uh, it, it seems. Name names, Alex, name right. names. Yeah, right, yeah, right, right, right. Right. So if you, so some of the discussion I've heard, and I agree with some of it, is that if you have already announced that sharing is essential to your business plan, and you have claimed that deployment is is soon, you are going to have a marketing problem. And, uh, you know, among the consequences here is you want to make sure your model um, is, you're modeled out to include the option to not share. Because people, I think, are going to want, if they're going to want autonomous vehicles, uh, one of the reasons they're going to, it's going to be very fresh in their minds is they were not going to want to have a driver who might be infected with anything. Right. And or they may want to be separated from the driver or other passengers. And or they may be willing to pay extra for a solo autonomous um, hail. So you're, you want to be modeled out for those, for those options. Um, you're the, the interior vehicle, the vehicle designs are going to have to address these things. Among them is that your vehicle need, when it is clean, needs to be cleaned in such a fashion that you can legitimately, honestly tell customers it has been cleaned, uh, in light of the following threats and risks and with a certain frequency and effectiveness that people can have faith and trust in, which has costs to the vendor. This absolutely, I'm sorry to say, annihilates any theoretical robotaxi fleet coming out of Tesla. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because I needed to well, the vehicle, I own the Model 3. I love it. Um, but, you know, where is the model for cleaning these vehicles? Is, if Tesla's not providing it, it would have to be on the individual owner level. Right. If, you, if you're throwing your vehicle into, into a fleet. For example, if a taxi fleet, a, a robo-hail, a robo-taxi fleet offered by a single vendor single point of responsibility for these things is one thing. Um, that's, that's why if you rent a Hertz, your Hertz rental 
breaks down, you can get another vehicle and hurts. Right. It's the peer to peer. If you rent a Turo, your yeah. Turo goes down. Uh, you're not going to get an equivalent. You may not necessarily be able to get an equivalent vehicle immediately. And the same thing is going to be true of cleaning and maintaining autonomous vehicles in a shared robo taxi fleet. Mm-hmm. So Tesla has got a real issue here. Uh, the notion of self-reliance and its ineffectiveness in terms of vaccinations or health, you know, herd immunity doesn't work. You need a collective solution in the same way that you need a collective solution for maintenance of antiviral, antibacterial, you know, safety for robo taxi fleets. It's not going to work in the, in, in the Tesla model. So I'd like to hear what ARK Invest has to say about that. Uh, I actually think that, that I'm hoping that this prompts people to really think about design. Oh, yeah. Because here's the thing. Traditionally now, because we're not at a point where, you know, all the robo taxis out there right now are essentially traditional vehicles that have been, you know, with integrated systems on the very highest end, but we are not seeing any like, Really, in a in a way, we see some shuttles, but we still see the human safety driver behind those. Let's say we get to a point where we're fully driverless. Well, great. Um, however, you need to have these systems in place where it's not only that they're cleaned, but that you minimize and really think about how people use these vehicles. So if the doors can automatically open, for example, if you have a shuttle, that removes one touch point that would make someone uncomfortable, but also require a human being to clean. Screens, what everyone touching them, that's gross. And um, and then touching their face. Really high potential. um, Viruses love those flat, hard surfaces. Yeah. Right. And so here's the thing, like, I think that all companies and this has been said many times before, but this is a perfect example of why you need to really be thinking about what they're going to do to manage their fleets and how they're going to do that. And like Alex said, not just clean it, but clean it in a way that people know and understand um, and can verify that that's happening. So it can be process driven. Right. right? But also not the interior but and, and the cleaning, but integrating the development of the two um, so that it's like developing a, a car and the manufacturing system that builds that car in tandem. And so it's all, every aspect of that is process driven and can, and you can have quality assurance and then quality control. Right. But then there's other things like, for example, we, let's say right now, driverless vehicles, um, we, we had an incident that, um, Waymo did confirm, um, that a driver, human safety driver, right, um, in their fleet, Waymo One Fleet and Chandler, did refuse to go to Intel because uh, they had heard, that person had heard that there was a COVID case there. Um, so on the one hand, you might think, oh, this is actually a great opportunity for them to roll out more driverless fleets. That's awesome. Perfect. But in a black swan event like 2020, like we're experiencing right now, and then suddenly you have to have all your workers go home. Who cleans those vehicles? So people need to be thinking now about design and how to automate cleaning and how to maintain it so that you don't require in and like that's a vulnerability right there. And guess guess who's going to benefit? Robot cleaning vendors. Right. Yeah. 
or just designing in the vehicle. Like for example, I know that there's a startup out there. I think that trucks backs them on that SIVA and they've created those little wipers for cleaning sensors automatically. Um, but that's a way of automating things, obviously that um, sensors need to be able to see the world around them at all times. But I could see a combination of thoughtful design of how you use something so you don't have to clean the outdoor handle all the time because people aren't touching it, for example, but also automating things that would normally rely on human beings, if anything, to lessen the load. I mean, self-disinfecting touchscreens are the technology we need right now. Mm-hmm. And not just in, in autonomous vehicles, but like ATMs. I mean, so many, so many things we've just used touchscreens and the fact, I mean, it, it's crazy. We never would have thought about the idea, the fact that like, you know, add a couple more bucks in cost to have some, you know, simple, very simple self-cleaning, self-disinfecting system. We hadn't thought about that before. Now we have to think about it. And so right. yeah, these opportunities. So I do think that, that this as a result is going to, people are thinking about how they're touching and interacting with things all the time. And I'm hopeful that some student or some engineer or design person over at any of these um, AV developers is inspired by what's going on and how it's impacted their lives. And they start thinking about these things, um, you know, and then you can apply it to, by the way, they should have already been thinking about this anyway, because of um, people's with disabilities and how they're able to interact with things. It's hard to open up a car door uh, you know, if, if you are, um, let's say in a wheelchair and it's difficult to like position your body in a way to get it, it just would be easier if the doors opened automatically, for example, um, stuff like that. Yeah. These are examples of kind of what I remember. There's a great no parking podcast episode about, um, talking about human centered design and humanity centered design and thinking about things that, that could fuel the transmission of a disease. It's, 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 Partly it's human centered, but that is really kind of part of that step towards humanity focused design. Think, think about what are the impacts of someone using this this um, thing. The other piece on the design side, I wonder if we're going to see more companies. Um, I've been thinking sort of since you started talking, especially, but but over the last couple of days, um, Neuro. Um, you know, we recently had David Estrada from Neuro on the show, and he mentioned this, um, and they've been saying this in a lot of places. You know. And and it's funny because they were making this argument before coronavirus, you know, really became the phenomenon that it is now. Um, and they were saying, why take um, people to go right? Like, if so many trips are are about you know grocery shopping, um, why take people to the store when you can just bring the, sh- the the groceries to the to the people? And and so delivery and and so in China actually, Didi, um, who has really been at the cutting edge of this in terms of ride hailing, which we can discuss more. Um, they are really pivoting hard to delivery services. Um, well, and, and for I, good reason. I mean, their ride hailing business like dropped by fifty percent or something. Yeah, exactly. So, so, but people, you know, especially people are 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 in stuck at home. Delivery is going to be really important. The one other thing I wanted to, since you were talking about the investment environment, I think there's a, another factor that's kind of common in a lot of this, which is that you know, yeah, coronavirus may affect investments um, that the VCs and stuff are making in startups. But I think what what tends to get lost when there's so much focus on coronavirus and, and its impact, COVID-19, um, is is that, you know, also there has been this sort of cyclical slowdown in mobility tech investments as it's turned out to be a lot harder than a lot of the early, you know, first wave companies kind of represented. So I think that 
it will be it will continue to be a challenging environment to to raise money um, as a mobility tech startup. Um, in part because of coronavirus, but really mostly because of all the factors. I, I wouldn't like if I were a startup or, or wanting to start a startup. Um, I would be thinking I'd be worried less about the coronavirus's COVID nineteen specific impact, and more about sort of all of these other things that have been sort of cooling that investment environment for really over a year now. Sure, I mean the reason why this is are um, going to have kind of deep effects um, is because we already we're seeing consolidation and sort of some brutal reality, which we talked about on the show, you know, months ago. And, you know, we all saw that playing out kind of at CES. This just puts greater pressure on all companies. I mean, take like a com- like one example is LA, you know, schools are shut down, all bars, restaurants, everything is shut down right now, except for banks uh, pharmacies and grocery stores. That has a ripple effect through the entire economy because all these people uh, don't have jobs to go to and things like that. And that is going to just, even people at the upper edge of income, investors, VC firms, that is going to give them pause, obviously. So it's 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 just squeezing these companies even more so the question is how long that is that going to last and is it going to create some opportunities for the bigger well-funded companies to step in and either crush smaller competition buy them up etc cetera, etc cetera, or will this depending on how long it goes on um cause companies to pivot and change their strategy and you know potentially even take advantage of, of an opportunity that arises. It's like, it's still early days, but no matter what, we know that the landscape is changing because it was already under change. And now COVID-19 is accelerating that change. Yeah, Alex, um, you know, I know you can't say too much in these situations, but, um, you know, you have a unique insight into sort of how some of the bigger, well-funded AV companies are handling this. Are you you asking because I work for Argo AI? Well, but also, you know, a lot of people in the industry too. So not just Argo. Yeah. But, but I'm just kind of curious, like, is this, is there a sense that, that what's happening right now is, is a big enough deal to prompt um, at least investigation of uh, strategic pivots or, or new approaches, new models? Um, You mentioned sharing um, being an issue for companies that have built around that like is delivery i mean because we don't know what's going to you know by the time these products come to market the, the environment might be quite different but would you know would it make sense for for these better funded companies to start looking at things like delivery bots or or other kinds of uh, form factors that maybe they weren't looking at before I, I, well obviously I, I don't represent argo on this show and i can't say anything about what argo's even thinking at this time um but uh, i would say that it it's good. The companies that have not yet announced the specific timing of their deployment plans are in a better position uh, with investors because they, they don't they'll have less to walk back. Um, and one a company any company that has only a single deployment plan or mode or vehicle uh, is you know going to have some their hands relatively tied and will have to do a lot of walk in the walk backing. I think. And this is now, again, all this is personal opinion. Uh, I think companies, the bigger companies that have not yet 
looked at all the different revenue streams that they could derive from autonomous tech uh, are going to have to partner or make acquisitions as soon as possible if they can. Um, and the trend, given that we're, in, we were, if we weren't already in the trough of disillusionment, we sure are now, the trend as, of acquisitions and bankruptcies is going to accelerate in the coming weeks in a big yeah. way, in a big way. I'm uh, one of my, and I, and I say weeks, I mean like potentially days of yeah. this episode's airing. We're going to see some very quiet, some very quiet bankruptcies and acquisitions. Well, yeah. Just anecdotally, I would say, like, I'm already seeing an uh, effect um, from startups here where, let's say, they had an announcement. They, you know, have reached out to me because they are going to, they want to announce funding or they're, you know, maybe not sharing all the details, but hey, you know, we're going to be doing something in a couple weeks. All of those folks have postponed, which is interesting because technically there's no reason that they should. Um, but I think that there is this feeling that, uh, you know, the optics aren't great to announce the, these funding or things like that um, right now. And, and so you're already seeing these just psychological effects occurring and how these startups are thinking about and how they're being advised, by the way. To um, share information and and you know not be maybe too celebratory things like that. Uh, there's going to be a balance there because um, you know they they of course need to get and want their message out there and want people to know that they exist. But I mean, I, this, let me be super Alex Roy cynic now. Think for a second about the arguments in support of case you know, autonomy business models, you know, connected autonomous shared and electric. Yeah. So the uh, pure electric, the electric component of the stool of case is, I would not out the window, but there's a lot less impetus for it in a world of cheap oil. Okay. The sharing component had, there's impetus there to share because you want increased throughput through your city streets. Um, yes. But then against that, you have people's fear of getting into a shared vehicle unless technology um, is caught up with those fears. Which is an interesting challenge in light of the episode we just ran with uh, with Ashley Nunes of Harvard, right. who, who said that really only getting a lot of people into each vehicle is really the only way that AVs can be profitable. That's a, that's a huge challenge. And on the flip side, people, so people of means who can afford to take Ubers every day or drive every day and park in a major city, uh, but who may take a subway for convenience – are now a lot less likely to want to take a subway for convenience because subway has its own issues regarding cleaning and, and trust. So those people may be more likely to want to take ground vehicles. They may also more likely to want to take ground vehicles that are not shared. And so you have a push pull in, in the models that you're and the models are going to have to be rebuilt from scratch. And we probably don't have enough information at this time to know how COVID and cultural fears will affect those models. So then you have the autonomous component. There's absolutely impetus to believe people will not want to be in a vehicle with a stranger who may or may not, who may be carrying anything. Uh, And then the connected part is obvious. Connectivity will be essential, not for safety, um, because the safe, the pure safety argument for AVs now is probably not going to play as much in people's minds um, as uh, the safety argument for cleanliness and, right. and disease, but connectivity regardless is necessary for these systems to deploy. Right. Well, sorry. So here's the unfortunate, um, 
outcome is that we've already seen that there was absolute demand for ride hailing in a normal world, but that the um, downside was that it created a lot more traffic. And what we really need in this world is cities are cities to be designed in a way that are for people and not just cars, and that promotes people using and effective public transit, uh, sharing, and a combination of like bicycling and things like that. And I think that this is going to absolutely put slow that whole directive down. And that, as you said, even as robo taxis or um, you know come to being, people are going to be. First of all, we're not even at the point where we we really have to worry about this because there's not like any really commercially viable robo taxis in the world, but. It will change the way people think about it. And people aren't going to forget. They're going to remember for a long time the fallout with COVID-19 and and globally. So I think it will be on people's consciousness five years from now, honestly. Yeah. Shared vehicles aren't going to happen. And it's going to boost private ownership, I think, even more. Or this feeling of not wanting to share, which unfortunately is going to cause even more traffic problems. And I know that's like very gloom and doom, but... If you see any major tragedy crisis that has happened in our history, it impacts everything. It impacts literature, it impacts art, it impacts the way people do business. And I think that if this carries on long enough, it will absolutely impact the way people travel. I actually am going to say, I I agree mostly with you. I think that there, there will be, if there was an autonomous ride hail robot taxi service right now anywhere... I think that the demand for solo rides um, after the quarantine has ended would skyrocket. Secondly, I think that after this is over, um, work from home policies, there are companies that are not going to bring back all their workforce. They're going to bring back right. not like essential people. Yes, not essential going to work from home, which will reduce real estate uh, demand for real estate, high density real estate and traffic. And, and, and as a result, they'll uh, reduce traffic. So we are going to see a, a really smart city planner or urban transportation leader is going to see these things ahead of time and embrace and seek, you know, uh, platforms um, that will allow them to monetize um, the equilibrium point, which will be unique for each city between demand, real estate, traffic throughput. Um, I mean, if I... <laughs> I don't want to say there's any positive, you know, things come out of COVID, but there will be potentially for the right city, the right city planner, positive outcomes for all. Kirsten, you you mentioned um, companies sort of delaying news and announcements and stuff. For me, one of the really interesting companies that I'm going to watch um, in the coming months is Zooks because they're planning on, they've been working for years now on their shared robo taxi mm-hmm. um that's what it's designed for that's the application um and they're supposed to show that sometime in the coming you know whatever I, I think they said the first half of this year but but sometime this year for sure i wonder if that's gonna be delayed i wonder if i i wonder what they've done uh you know is it because right because like cruises origin um had you know for what it's worth antimicrobial surfaces uh you know materials um in their interior I don't know how much that that helps specifically with this issue, but um, with viruses. But what what if anything um, 
can Zooks do with the design, given that so much of it has probably been baked in already, um, to sort of address some of these concerns? That I think they've they've got to be. I mean, I don't know about panicking, but they've got to be really, you know, that's got to be a concern for them. And and I wouldn't surprise me to see if they maybe delay a little bit and maybe try and make some tweaks or wait wait for some of the panic to die down or something. Because showing a, a shared robotaxi right now, um, it's going to be a very tough sell to 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 get people just to get people to to buy into that future. And that's really what these companies are doing. They're not they don't have products right now that are going to be. Right. I mean, we're not in a position right now where every company has thousands of these things on the road and we're really getting to see how it's going to play out in the age of COVID-19. It's really more about, uh, it's more like a market where it's based on expectations and whether people will forget or change their behavior back to normal by the time companies like Zooks and others bring their product to market. Um, But I do think it's going to Destroy the in-car touchscreen market? I I think, well, so Alex, you've repeatedly, which was interesting to me about your home charger. I'm coming full circle now. You had told me because of your parents as refugees that your father was marked for life for always having like a full tank of gas in the vehicle and and always having a car. Mm -hmm. And during some past hurricanes and things like that, you had in the past said, you know, EVs could be um, for people like yourself or someone like your dad, let's say, wouldn't have wanted to invest in that sort of EV because of this idea of the range and wanting to get out. Um, and and it seems like as you had had the Tesla, your maybe your thoughts have changed on that. Um, but I wonder if this this uh, pandemic. And, and its effect psychologically on people and also really on their everyday lives is going to keep people from trying new transportation methods like EVs and sticking to the more traditional, what they know, um, gas powered vehicles or, or um, I certainly think people are going to rely more heavily on private, privately, private transportation of, of any kind privately owned scooters, privately owned bikes, privately owned cars. But what about the actual, you know, the fuel, the power source? Especially when oil is going down. Uh, I think that EVs, well, it depends on what you think, what catastrophe you think we're going to face. You know, if gas was, if, if fuel was just unavailable, but power was still on, EVs will see more demand. Um, I mean, the alternative is you think fuel is unavailable and power goes out, which is the Mad Max scenario, uh, in which case um, you want to be on motorcycles. I don't I don't know. I can't. I think it's too soon. But the thing is, is that people are going to be making their decisions based on what they think is going to happen, not what will happen. OK, so ba- all right, you're absolutely correct. So let's assume based on go to your local supermarket. Well, I've been by the way, I've been hoarding supplies for two weeks for weeks. You're, um, you're part of the problem, Alex. Well, I, I was not hoarding toilet paper. Okay. And I was not hoarding like anti, like special soap um, because regular soap in most cases is sufficient. Right. Um, but I was absolutely buying groceries probably three weeks prior to this, the crisis becoming like a big deal. Um, and uh, if you observe uh, 
what people have been buying, which is <laughs> toilet paper, bottled water. Which um, makes no sense. Yeah, toilet paper, bottled water, and pasta. Okay, I could see that. While not so much like frozen vegetables and fruits and things. Like, I mean, I guess like people have been shopping irrationally, which means they're probably shop for vehicles irrationally. Right. Which will probably people will, well, I don't know if it's irrational to buy a gas car, um, but I don't think most people will see the wisdom of EVs at this time. I think this, if anything, this is bad for EVs um, overall, which is counterintuitive. Luxury goods tend to be hit hurt worse, you know, in, in downturns as well. And again, I think that's to me what I keep coming back to is that there is so much focus on COVID, but we also, you know, the, the world hasn't transformed fundamentally. Like all of the factors that were at play a month ago, three months ago, six months ago, continue to be at play. And, um, you know, I, and so I think there's, you know, lots of other things. So I think, you know, the cyclical downturn um, is, if anything, going to going to be the, the, you know, just slow demand for all vehicles. And, and so I think that's going to be more the dynamic than the whole market. And, and the market's been shifting towards trucks and SUVs anyway. That might be, you know, match up with sort of apocalyptic fears or whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, how many cyber trucks are people going to buy now? I mean, I could. It has a very post-apocalyptic. Yeah, no, I think that I think that people are going to buy if the GMC Hummer, if the Rivian and the Cybertruck were all available right now. I think people would be buying those. Maybe, yeah, um, especially if they have an off-grid. But but I think Tesla is a, a great a great illustration of this, right? Because Tesla has gone from like you know up to like nine hundred dollars a share, over nine hundred dollars a share. And they're now back down to like half that just in a matter of weeks. Right. Along with every other stock, by the way. Well, exactly. So the, but, but the question is, you know, um, and, and, and what, what to me is frustrating, right? Okay. So obviously a lot of that is just the entire market's going down because of coronavirus. And, and, and I get that. But what, what's frustrating is that there are things, there have been things that have happened that people aren't looking at because this blanket, we have this blanket excuse not to, to discount every other factor in this extremely complex world that we live in. And so, for example, the NTSB, uh, I mean, that hearing, I mean, I listened to the entire thing. I live tweeted it. That was the, you know, and it's something that we've discussed before. I've certainly written about the possibility of this happening before. But the NTSB, I mean, that that hearing was the most, like, harsh, confrontational call out, not calling out not just Tesla and the design decisions they made around autopilot, but also calling out NHTSA for being asleep at the wheel when there's, you know, a unique new challenge to automotive safety is is that going through is that been a, a total non-factor in tesla's declining stock price and again i i don't pretend to understand why the stock price does what it does but it's not like things are exactly the same as they were six months ago the factors that were at play six months ago or a year ago continue to evolve um and and some of them may be affected by this this coronavirus but like it, it hasn't made them all go away and so i think that this risk around Tesla with with their approach to uh, automated driving <laughs> clearly hasn't gone away. It's clearly gotten worse. Um, and uh, NHTSA now is under a ton of pressure to at least sh- pretend like they're doing something uh, about this because NTSB has investigated a number of cases now, and they've consistently said that there are two major design flaws with that system that make distracted driving, that enable distracted driving and make it more, make you more likely to die. Guys, we're running out of time here and we have a lot of other stuff to talk about. But let me say this. I actually am a lot more 
I'm quite optimistic about the future of autonomous tech and robots work from home, but especially um, a new generation of startups that will balance the need to have privacy, but, but also the need to share collective information about movement and tracking. I think we're going to see a lot of innovation come out of this COVID crisis, and that's the best we can hope for. Uh, we should encourage it. I would, I, I really, I guess in closing, hope that people think smartly more about design and that we, we see, we see some really innovative, you know, just people thinking about things differently. And as a result, getting some really interesting designs coming out of this for user interaction. Um, I also think that, uh, a number of companies over the years have, um, you know, pitched me about their automated, you know, warehousing robots and it never got much attention. You know, I'd write stories. I think that investors that have like helped these or invested in these companies um, are going to see a lot more demand for these types of technologies because automation is, um, is something that we could potentially rely on more heavily during times like this. Maybe not as a total solution. I'm not saying remove humans entirely, but there are certain tasks that could make it safer for humans to remain in a factory, for example, lessen touch points, things like that. Um, so I see, I see those companies doing very well in this scenario. So this is a good um, segue. We're going to do an, uh, an episode soon here, um, potentially the one right after this, uh, with Sam Abelstamid of Navigant Research because they've just come out with their latest leaderboard. We've done episodes about that in the past. And I think it's, once again, it's a great reminder. You know, I think there's, it's controversial. The idea of a, a horse race and handicapping it and all that is, is controversial. And we'll discuss that again. But um, to me, what I always keep coming back with with this Navigant report is that it's a fantastic reminder of exactly what Kirsten is talking about, which is that, you know, it's not just about developing an AV stack. You have to really understand what that product's going to be. And you need to have, um, be picking viable markets to compete in and designing the vehicle and designing the operations around that vehicle. So it's one holistic, so it's, it's a, it's a holistic service. It's not just we're developing this one technology and everything else will just sort of happen on its own around it. Um, you have to take that holistic approach. And 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 again, as we were saying with Zooks, you know, uh, uh, if you're being ahead of the curve on some of that stuff may mean that you actually uh, potentially have lost the opportunity to learn a little bit from this COVID. Uh, and I'm not saying that's what's happened at Zooks. I'm just saying there's a there's at least some risk of that because they've been working on it so long. So um, every, I think that, you know, this, this Navigant discussion is going to be a really good way to kind of get the focus back onto what are you doing operationally? What's your go-to-market strategy? Um, how do you design a vehicle and, and operations around that in a way um, that automate as much as possible or efficient, the clean, all those sorts of things. So that should be a good discussion. And uh, we hope you'll join us for that on the next episode of the Atomicast.